to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Well, again, Happy New Year. Welcome to Roswell Presbyterian Church. It's so good to be worshiping with you today. So as we enter into the new year, I want you to check the church website. We have a ton of ministries and new activities that are going to be happening. We can't cover them all here in the service, but just go to roswellpress.org to, to read about all of them. But one of the things we are beginning here in the new year is a new sermon series, and it's appropriately called Beginnings. And we're going to be studying the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. It's my conviction that I don't think we can know where we are or who we are until we know where we've come from. And the Bible has a very unique story about telling about our origin. Today we're going to look at the opening chapters, the first two chapters in the book of Genesis. Now a lot of people have a lot of anxiety about how to make sense of these chapters in the Bible, especially when it comes to modern science. In fact, many people have left their Christian faith because they see the two as incompatible. Well, after the sermon today, I hope they're all going to come back to the church. Small goals, small goals. (laughs) I'm going to begin with the first verse, uh, and then I'll cover the rest of the two, two chapters in the message. But before we do, let's pray. Gracious and loving God, would you grant me today the gift of preaching, that our ears, our hearts, our minds might be open not to my word, but your word, that we might learn a little more about your world, that we could find our place in it, that we could find our vocation and respond to your call on our lives. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Genesis begins with these words. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jeff, how come you never told me that there are two creation stories in the book of Genesis? Sam said this to me with a mixture of surprise and indignation. As an undergrad, Sam had been my intern for three years. We had co-led a Bible study over those three years. That means we spent a lot of time reading the Bible together. He discerned a call to ministry, went off to seminary. After his first semester in seminary, he came back, and we met up for coffee. And he told me all about the things he had learned that first semester in seminary. He was so excited. He was less excited about telling me the things he wish I would have prepared him with before going to seminary. And one of those things was that there are two stories of creation in the book of Genesis. He said, kind of hurt, he said, Jeff, that feels like a big bang. I told him, I'm sorry, man. I should have told you. Did you ever realize that there are two stories of creation in the book of Genesis? 
Now in the Bible, Genesis 1-1 begins with these words. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. And then the first account of creation unfolds. In Genesis, it lists out the days of creation. On the first day, God said, let there be light, and there is light, and God calls it good. On the second day, God creates the sky and the sea, and he calls it good. On the third day, land and vegetation calls it good. On the fourth day, the stars, the sun, and the moon, God calls it good. On the fifth day, sea creatures, fish, and birds calls it good. On the sixth day, animals and humankind, God calls it good. And on the seventh day, God rests. And it's like he sits back with an Arnold Palmer with a little straw in it. and He, he looks out at all his creation and says, it is very good. Very good. He looks out at creation, calls it very good. And then comes the second story of creation. It begins in Genesis 2, verse 4. And it tells a very different story of creation. See, the earth is barren. And it says that God causes streams to rise up and water covers the face of the earth. And then the text says that God creates the ha-adam in Hebrew, the ha-adam, the human. Some translations say the man, some say Adam, but more appropriately, it's the human, ha-adam. Why? Because the ha-adam, notice the poetry here in Hebrew, the ha-adam is created from the adamah. The adamah is the earth, the dust, the soil. The human is created from it. And it says that God breathes the breath of life into the human. And then the Lord God plants a garden and places the human being in the middle of it and causes vegetation to grow. And there amidst the vegetation are two trees. Bless you. And the two trees, God says, you shall not eat from these two trees. We'll come back to that next week. But the Lord God says and looks out said it's not good for a human being, the human being to be alone. And so he creates animals, fills it with all kinds of animals of every kind. And the human comes and names all of them. But then God says, these animals are not a suitable partner for the human being. And so out of the human's ribs, the Lord God creates a partner for the human. And it's interesting here that in the Hebrew, it changes no longer do we hear of the ha-adam, but we have ish and isha, the man and the woman. And they're both, the text says, created in God's image. The very image of God, they're created in, and then in the final verse of the second creation account, it reads, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, in the first account of creation, we see this orderly display of God's unfolding of creation. And then in the second, we see human beings as the culmination of creation. We see human beings given a vocation to take care of it, to nurture it, to even flourish alongside of creation. These are two beautiful stories of creation and the human being's place in it. Not every 
ancient culture told such a beautiful story of creation. Remember, the Bible was written against the backdrop of numerous other stories about creation in the world. The biblical story of creation was written really with two primary stories in the background. In the ancient Near East, the first was the Egyptian story of creation. It's usually found in coffins and on the walls of pyramids. The stories vary depending on location, but really Egyptian cosmology can be summed up like this. The primeval waters are called noon, and out of these waters, the creator God emerges out of an act of self-creation. The creator God then creates other gods and goddesses, and these gods represent the various forces of nature. It's interesting in this story, we have very little reference to humanity in this story of creation. All we hear is that humans are created from the tears of the sun god, Ra. Ra. And that's how human beings were created in the Egyptian mindset. But remember that Hebrew and Israelite slaves were in Egypt, and they told their very story of creation. And can you imagine them oppressed and abused, sitting around the campfire telling about their God, and then them kind of looking at their Egyptian overlords and saying, ha, Ra, the sun God, the sun was created on the fourth day by our God. Just the courage, the chutzpah, <laughs> that they would have the faith. Oh. Then, other than the Egyptian myths, we have the Mesopotamian myths, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They spoke Akkadian. And there are two primary stories of creation in the Akkadian literature. The first is the Enuma Elish. The Enuma Elish tells the story of Marduk's exaltation to the head of the pantheon. He's like the ultimate chief god. And Marduk continually battles the other gods and goddesses to maintain his supremacy. But when he comes to creating human beings, listen to what Marduk says. He says, I shall compact blood. I shall cause bones to be. I shall make stand a human being. Let man be its name. I shall create humankind. They shall bear the God's burden that those may rest. Did you catch that? They shall bear the God's burden that those may rest. In other words, we've created human beings so that they can carry the God's burden so that the gods can rest. Interesting. The second story of Akkadian literature of creation is the Atresis. The first scene opens with only the gods who exist in maybe what is the first recorded story of labor strife in human history. There's a strike between the managing gods and kind of the worker gods. See, the worker gods have been busy digging irrigation canals and they're tired of working. And Enlil is the god who represents the managing gods. And these worker gods come and they begin to picket outside Enlil's house. And so Enlil gets fed up with this. And so what does he do? He decides to create humans as alternative workers. Enlil directs the god of birth to give birth to these humans. And then he, he says, and I quote, bear the yoke the task of Enlil, let man assume 
the drudgery of the gods. The drudgery of the gods. And so in these two stories, we see the vision for human life, for the gods to give their work, their their labors, their drudgery, and that is the point of a human life from these vantage points. Humans are created to bear the burdens, the drudgery. These are very different stories than the creation stories we see in the Bible. I really see two major differences. See, these other stories feature conflict at the center of creation, whereas in the opening stories of the book of Genesis, we see God create out of loving kindness, faithfulness. There's a sense of peace, even, dare I say, friendship. And then there's also this view of human life, this beauty, this dignity that we don't see in the other stories, so much so that listen to this in chapter 2, verse 27. It reads, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Human beings are created in the image of God. The other ancient Near Eastern myths would have none of this. Those are the ancient stories of the origin of our world. But let's be honest, we moderns tell a very different story of the origins of our cosmos. We have what we might call the scientific story. And it's an entirely different genre than the myths of the ancient Near East. The scientific story of the origin of our world goes something like this. The universe came into being about 14 billion years ago. It's self-generated out of a big bang. The earth came into existence roughly 4.5 billion years ago. And out of a process of self-replicating molecules led to the emergence of life. The process of natural selection and evolution led to the development of animals, human beings, and everything we experience. Now the scientific story of the origin of the world troubles people of faith. When we read the scientific fundamentalists, people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, we begin to feel stupid, ignorant, uneducated. Many of us even feel fear. And we ask, what are we to do? How are we to make sense of the biblical text? How about these other ancient stories? How do we make sense of the scientific story of the origins of the cosmos? Which one is right? For years, I had trouble wrestling with these questions. And then I had the good fortune, I was listening to a conversation from my favorite authors, Marilyn Robinson, and she was talking to a famous astrophysicist. Now, Marilyn Robinson has written a bunch of books of nonfiction, won the Pulitzer Prize. She's also won award-winning nonfiction essays, and she's a deep reader of theology and science in the conversation between the two. And she's talking to this astrophysicist, and then she makes this point. And she says this, she says, I think many times when scientists use the word explain, they actually mean describe. When scientists use the word explain, they actually mean describe. There's a big difference between describing the world and explaining the world. A Christian view of science sees science as a tool to explore, to understand, to describe the world, but science does not explain the world. 
Why is there something when there could be nothing? What is the purpose of a human life? How should I treat my child? How should I treat my neighbor? Science has a tough time with these kinds of questions. Now, if you're a Presbyterian, I want you to know that anytime you come up with a question that you think no one has ever asked before, you're wrong. Somebody has asked it before. And luckily in the Presbyterian tradition, we write it down. One of the places we write these questions down are in catechisms. And in the Presbyterian Church USA study catechism, it addresses this question. It says this, does your confession of God as creator, it's referring to the Apostles' Creed, does your confession of God as creator contradict the findings of modern science? It goes on, no. My confession of God as creator answers three questions. Who, how, and why? It affirms the who. Who is the creator? The triune God who is self-sufficient. How did God create? By calling the world into being out of nothing by the creative power of God's word. And why did God do this? For the sake of sharing love and freedom. And then it goes on. Natural science has much to teach us about the particular mechanisms and processes of nature. But it is not in a position to answer these questions about ultimate reality, which point to mysteries that science as such is not equipped to explore. Nothing basic to the Christian faith contradicts the findings of modern science, nor does anything essential to modern science contradict the Christian faith. One of the primary writers of this is a professor of mine, and he once said, Jeff, theology and science are dogs in different races. So then why did the Bible require two creation stories in the book of Genesis? Why are they different than the ancient Near Eastern stories? How does Scripture teach us to keep science in its proper place while also answering the who, the how, and the why of creation? Let's turn to the New Testament. There's an interesting way the New Testament writers tell the story of Jesus. They again and again say, in a mysterious way, Jesus the Christ was present at the beginning of the creation of all things. Why do they say this? Well, they begin with another question by asking, how could Jesus Christ be raised from the dead? And they surmise that only a power that could overcome death, only a power that could create something out of nothing could have raised Jesus from the dead. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in John 1, the writer writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Or try on Colossians 1. He, or Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been, been created through him and for him. Or try on Hebrews 1. Long ago, 
God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. The worlds. I could go on and on, but the point is, Christ is the key, the center of creation. In Jesus Christ, we see the who, the triune God who is revealed in Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. How? By, by the creative words spoken at the beginning in Christ. And why? For the sake of sharing love and freedom. That's why we're here. This all hit home when an undergraduate mechanical engineering student came to me and said he'd always been an atheist, but he began to become intrigued by Christianity. I asked him what was holding him up. And he said, I've been reading the book of Genesis, and I just don't see how Genesis is compatible with science. And I told him, man, don't start with Genesis, start with Jesus. Only then will you begin to understand Genesis. So he went and read the Gospel of Matthew, and he came back, and he said, I haven't ever seen anything quite like that before. He was intrigued, but still struggling to reconcile theology and faith with science. I told him, man, trust Jesus Christ with your life, and Christ will show you the way through. Jesus will guide and direct your pursuit of science to explore, to understand, to describe creation. But don't confuse things. It can never explain the world. Only Christ can do that. Michael went on to do a PhD at Georgia Tech. Even to this day, he became a Christian, and he uses his faith to recognize and see and understand and describe problems in nature. And he uses science to solve them, and he's undergirded. He's energized by his Christian faith, by the one he sees who's the creator in Jesus Christ. He's able to do this because he follows Christ and using science to understand the world. And friends, just like those ancient creation myths, we have myths all around us. It's a myth that the world is meant for greed, that the only way to win and get ahead is through violence, that chaos rules the world. But there is another way to trust our lives to the one who created the world by speaking it into existence the one who created it, for us to love God and love our neighbors in love and freedom. And to me, that realization, that's the biggest bang of all. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for who you have spoken into the world in Jesus. And I pray that we might hear, we might listen, we might trust and obey that word. We might respond to the vocation that we've been called to to love you and love our neighbors in love and freedom. We thank you for the world that you called very, very good. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. 
May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.